Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I've got a special guest for you, Larry Dietz. And he's not even in a virtual studio. We're both here today out at COSAC Conference in Nace, Ireland. So, Larry, thank you for taking the time to join us, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to work with a fellow veteran. Glad to help out. Well, as you probably heard from some of my prior comments, I had had the privilege to serve as a Navy officer, and Larry had a chance to serve also in the United States Army and did a lot of interesting things there. But in addition to that, of course, you've done some other really rather special things in your career. Care to take a couple minutes and just tell us a little bit about yourself and all the interesting things you've done? Well, I have done a fair amount of interesting things in and out of the military. Uh, perhaps the most interesting thing. Uh, with regard to my legal career is I'm admitted to the bar of the United States Supreme Court. And one of the things I do for public service back in California is I am a volunteer temporary judge in small claims court. All right. Well, if you ever get in really serious trouble, I know who to call. But uh, in addition to that, uh, tell me a little bit more. You're here at a cybersecurity conference. And in fact, you're, you're speaking tomorrow on a range of subjects that I think are quite fascinating and are almost the follow-on to the episode 98 that we just recorded on running from the bear. So what are you going to be talking about? And maybe we'll get into that as a subject. Well, as it turns out, Mark, I have military career. I have a legal career. I had the opportunity to serve both in Bosnia and Vietnam. My wife and I are both uh, certified advanced international humanitarian law instructors got involved in the cyber business back in the Vietnam War as a communications security officer and a crypto facility inspector. So I've been doing this for quite some time. And two years ago, I taught an elective for Monterey College of Law. I'm also a law professor on law of armed conflict. And the last week of that, it was a five-week elective, the last week we devoted to things that were technology uh, particularly uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, which laypersons call drones, and uh, the cyber world. Not to share my personal life, but my wife and I have been married over half a century, and we've been to COSAC here, I don't know, eight times maybe. But I always have to pay for her. You know, I pay for her room and board, which is not trivial. And I said, you know, let's do a joint presentation. And so tomorrow she will bring the nursing humanitarian professorial perspective to uh, the topic, and I'm going to bring the military and legal. And our topic is cyber war and the law of armed conflict. Well, congratulations on figuring out how to hack the system and be able to get your lovely wife out here as part of the participants. But I'm looking forward to what you have to say tomorrow. But for our listeners who are, are not here in Ireland, you're going to get a chance to get a real preview of what he's going to talk about. So we talk about cyber law an armed conflict. What exists out there in the body of law relative to cyber? I know that in the law of armed conflict, we have things like the Geneva Convention and other documents that have or have not been signed by different parties and things such as that. But let's start out with that as a baseline. When we talk about law in warfare, for those who've never served in the military, warfare seemed to be kind of like almost a lawless environment. But I don't think that's really the case, is it? No, Mark, it's, it's not the case, as you well know. 
And there are several bodies of law that U.S. service members and military members are compelled to follow. U.S. in particular, we have the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is the legal system for military personnel. And, of course, many countries have signed the Geneva Convention. Many countries have signed conventions about uh, nuclear weapons and chemical weapons. But in terms of what is out there in terms of cyber war and regulations for that, there's a big fat zero uh, in terms of laws and regulations. There's a nonfiction book called The Talonin Manual, named for the bustling metropolis Talonin, which is the capital of Estonia. Estonia being one of the early victims of a hybrid war. What's a hybrid war? A hybrid war is a combination of kinetic, meaning shooting and things that blow stuff up, and non-kinetic, which are things like cyber war, public affairs, psychological operation. Over a decade ago, I think it was, NATO commissioned a group of great thought thinkers to come up with the Talon and Manual, which Mark talked about. I don't know if you mentioned it in your speech. Mark found it at Walmart for $41 and change. And Mark said he briefed that earlier here at COSAC a number of years ago. But that's merely a suggestion. It's not a body of law. It's just a bunch of folks that come up with some great thoughts. So there really is no uh, body of law. There are no specific regulations on uh, cyber war. So we're kind of back to that question of maybe it is rather lawless, at least in the cyber perspective. So the document you talk about, which is available on the NATO's Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, or ccdcoe.org, is in fact also available on Walmart if you want to look at it. And I had the privilege to brief that document 10 years ago here at COSAC. I think it was in 2012 because it got published in 2013, but it turned out that the lead author or the lead editor on that program was another U.S. Navy Reserve captain. And I kind of made a gentleman's agreement, captain to captain, that if you send me a copy of this unpublished internal document, I promise not to give it to anybody, but I can extract from it and give the talk. And it worked. And so this was really the first place that that document was ever really discussed in public in an open forum. And what it contained is a mapping of the rules of warfare to cyber domains. And there are 95 of them, as I recall. And things such as attacking a civilian target is not appropriate for military use. It's off limits. It's against the rules of warfare. If it's a military target, yes, you can attack it. What if it's dual use? What if it's a power station that only provides power to a village? No. What if it also provides power to the airfield next door? Okay, now it's fair game. And what happens then is you're trying to map all those things. What got interesting was looking at things such as there's a requirement in warfare that if you are a uniformed combatant, that you wear your own uniform. If you wear your enemy's uniform and you get caught, they can shoot you. No one complain about that. If you are not in your own military, that is to say you're not in any type of chain of command, a civilian, for example, who just picks up and does stuff, well, you're outside of the rules of warfare and then the rules don't apply to you which then brings up interesting questions for things like anonymous. If anonymous is not really part of any government and has nobody officially in charge, then they don't get any protections under the rule of law when you map it to cyber. And so what we find then is there's been an effort now for over a decade to create some sort of understanding of how do we deal in this new domain, cyberspace, and conduct what 
ultimately are going to be operations in cyberspace. And now, because of the way we're so integrated with the rest of our weapons systems, our telecommunication systems, our critical infrastructure, gee whiz, our personal lives, everything is interconnected there. We need something. But over these last 10 years, with all this great work that was done by this group and published, how many treaties exist today in the world with respect to cyber? Let me start by saying that the answer to that is zero. And the talent and manual kind of reminds me of an experience I had when I was in law school, Mark. I went to, a, uh, I have a bifurcated legal education, which means I did part of it in one school, part of it in another. And I, uh, I spent two years at night at the University of Santa Clara, which is a Jesuit school. And one of the required subjects on the California bar is family law. And I ended up drawing a Jesuit priest for family law. And of course, being a cynical New Yorker that I've been accused of being, I said, what in the heck can he possibly know? And so uh, we walk into class and he makes the announcement. So this is in the, the late 80s, late 70s, that we need to buy his materials. There's a giant stack of a Xerox copy bunch of materials we have to buy. Okay, I mean, got to bite the bullet, right? Then he starts writing on the blackboard, and he goes, well, when I do my lecture, Roman numeral AB4 corresponds in my materials to Roman numeral 6J7. And trying to map the talent manual against anything else in the world is that kind of fruitless experience. So you got to start somewhere. So start with an international, well-recognized, neutral organization. And that would be the Inter International Committee of the Red Cross, acronymed ICRC, and their website, icrc.org, is, I think, probably the best repository of materials for cyber war. Although my good friends at NATO have uh, some good material on cyber war as well. So those are two good sources. So one of the things you said, Mark, relates to the participants, the combatants, and physical things like buildings. Combatants, people fall into two categories, targets, not targets. Civilian, not target. Military, target. So in theory, part of the delineation to be a participant is you have a uniform. But that has actually been morphed over the last several years because we have a number of very militant non-state actors, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, for example. And so participation now means you're part of an organized group. Some of the dilemmas that exist, though, are, are you a direct participant in the combat? If you are a direct participant in the combat, let's say you are a civilian contractor and you are helping to adjust missile systems, you are a target, even though you could be wearing a t-shirt and flip-flops. So the uniform thing kind of goes down the toilet with respect to that. You also talked about dual use. Dual use is a real challenge, and we've had some pretty good examples, thanks to my good pal Vlad Putin. The Kyrgyzstan Bridge is an example, and the American Red Cross, and I'm sure other Red Cross organizations, have a, a very good collection of training materials in international humanitarian law. I refer to that body of law as the law of armed conflict because I'm an army guy, and I feel it's a lot cooler saying law of armed conflict than international humanitarian law, which is why I think the combination of a nurse and a military guy is a good one. 
So with respect to the law of armed conflict, you need to understand that it's subject interpretation. And right now, the dual use thing is a big one. So there's this bridge. And in the Red Cross examples, the bridge is very simple. On one day, the bridge is only used by the people of the village to get their fruits, vegetables, and go to the market. The next day, it's used by a military convoy. The next day, there's some military people, there's some soldiers, there's some civilians, some children. And so there's an analysis of what is the preponderance of the use. And then you get into some of the tried and true traditional concepts of law of armed conflict, such as proportionality and the military nature of the objective. So Henry, let's take this into the cyber realm as we look at proportionality, dual use targets, and things such as that. For those of us who are working as CISOs and security leaders, as we discussed in our last episode, even as a non-combatant, we could end up either being a ancillary target, we could be subject to secondary damage like NotPetya, which did an awful lot of collateral damage to ostensibly organizations that were never needed to be targeted in the first place because no benefit was gained for either of the two parties that were supposed to be either the targeter or the targetee. And yet, when we think in cyber, when we talk about dual use, what, what would be the organizations that would maybe need to be concerned that they could qualify as dual use? Is, is the Amazon cloud, is a majeure does that all count as dual use because it could be used by both the military and civilians and you could take out the whole cloud or do you have to only aim for certain servers and then are you allowed to go ahead and kinetically blow up the data center or just do a DDoS? How does this all translate into this realm of cyber seeing as we really don't have a body of law for that yet? Well, the traditional body of, of law pretty much goes with the principle that the military commander's decisions are looked in the perspective of what information was available at the time. And so if we, I'm not a big Amazon cloud guy, God knows I'm a big Amazon truck guy, but not I'm an Amazon cloud guy. So uh, certain aspects of military processing, I think are, are clearly better legitimate targets than others. So for example, the payroll system, if I'm a payroll processor, let's pick one at random, ADP, and I have a government contract, but I'm also doing the payrolls of 7-Eleven and Joe's car repair and a bunch of other things, the, the military portion is not only non-combatant related, the fact that a military person's not getting paid, not going to affect whether he or she can fire a weapon, that would make that kind of a fuzzy target. Then Infrastructure is a very interesting target, and I happen to think uh, cyber war guys, like cybersecurity guys, are a lot more devious than people give them credit. And so when you look at the infrastructure of the internet, what about an attack to take that out? What if I could somehow screw up the domain naming service for a while? It doesn't even have to be a long time. What percentage of that would be military and what percentage of that would be commercial? And what would be the harm caused? The harm should be the measure. And, and while I'm on that, uh, in the olden days, the traditional measure in international humanitarian law, law of armed conflict, is often the violence and the amount of violence, the gravity of the harm that's caused by the violence. What we find then is that 
critical infrastructures, and there's 16 that are defined at the, you can go to CISA.gov and look this up. An original set of critical infrastructures had only eight, and that came out back in the Clinton administration, PDD 62 and 63, they addressed that, and then they didn't include the government. And I think the government said, hey, we need to be on that list too. And so now there's 16 of them have considered essential critical infrastructure. And for any of us who've been following the military conflict over in Ukraine, we can see that in a kinetic sense, critical infrastructures have been targeted. Dams, electrical grids, looking at potentially nuclear power plants, water systems, food and agriculture, uh, financial services and the like, and of course the government itself. And if we looked at the early days back in February, the second half of February 2022, there was a range of wiper malware that was distributed and that was aimed at government entities and websites and things such as that. So in the cyber world, I guess if you're fighting against an opponent, defacing or taking down their website seems to fall well within the realm of, okay, that's not a dual use target. Maybe somebody can't log in and look up what is my social security payment for next month, but the fact that that is hosting other things as well. As we look at other cyber attacks like doing a cyber outage like they did back in 2017, going after the power grid in Ukraine and shutting all that down. That then is, well, okay, if it's going to the military, I suppose. But what we're seeing today is with the tight integration of IT and OT, operational technology, that it's almost indistinguishable now to be able to say, I can have a critical infrastructure, but it also has to really have a huge electronic component to it. And my friend Rob Lee, who I had a chance to teach with for a few years, his, his company, Draghouse, has done extraordinarily well. I'd probably love to get him on the show at some point. Essentially, right place, right time, as we're exploding into this OT. And one of the conversations we had earlier today here at the security conference is somebody said, I have dusted off my notes from the 1990s. Because what we faced in the IT world back then is what the operational technology folks with the process controllers and all the infrastructure are facing today is that somehow they didn't learn the lessons. And so what we find then is that in addition to our traditional thought of cybersecurity saying, got to keep the network up and going, make sure the emails are working, that the files are flowing, et cetera, that for any of us that are working in an organization that has manufacturing or transportation or anything else where you're actually moving things around, that those components become probably more vulnerable because of the lack of baked-in security. But then thinking of our laws of armed conflict and the like, if you say that a railroad can move military equipment, but it also moves fruit and vegetables, etc., blowing up the rail station is one thing, but what if you were to go ahead and take out all its ability to go switching? It's just as effective if you can't use the system as it is if you blow it up. At least there's one way of thinking of it. So for those who have this infrastructure or operational stuff, any thoughts or advice and should they just not worry about it? Or is this also going to become a valid target? Or where are we going with regard with this totally interconnected network of everything? Well, Mark, thanks for that barrage of 5,287 discrete questions with 24 spurs on each one. Before I, I'll attempt to answer that, uh, I'd like to just address a skill that I think CISOs really need to have. And that is you have to be able to take the gobbledygook that we use every day, 
operational technology. And you need to explain that to the board of directors. And you need to work with your public affairs person so that when you are the voice of crisis communications, you can explain to the average Johnny or Jane Lunchpail out there what in the heck you mean. And so some of us who remember the olden days remember one of my favorite acronyms, SCADA, Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition. And nobody wanted to just touch that baby. That was just in the too hard box. It was a lot uh, like IBM would have all kinds of software for discrete manufacturing, but they would have bupkis, which is the Yiddish colloquial for nothing, bupkis in terms of process manufacturing. So you as the CISO now have to recognize, you have to understand your business in order to secure it and in order to get the support of your executives and your board and your budget. So you have to be able to say, well, now we realize that the IT functions that do this, that, and the other thing are core to our business. We make soda. We make non-alcoholic beverages. And so our supply chain, our ordering of materials, our process of bottling, the safety of the tanks that hold the carbonic acid, that is core to our business. And so as the cybersecurity lead, Mr. President, I need to have the budget to secure our business. Okay. Having said that, and everything is connected, the world has done a terrible job in the face of really good, bad examples. You just do not throw artillery shells near a nuclear reactor. I mean, what part of stupid don't people understand? You just do not take people out in the street and shoot them. That's not a good thing. And these are all uh, traditional violations, never mind sophisticated. And over the years, I've followed a number of security and legal issues, one of them being GDPR. And I always find that the legal system is always quite a bit behind the IT system and certainly quite a bit behind current events. And anytime there's a legal action, it's based on the standards of the future, the standards of the time the legal action is brought. So let's assume for the moment we're now in 2023. In 2024, something happens and Mr. Putin loses his job, you know, and Mr. Putin's opposition somehow gets a hold of him and sends his, uh, his skinny butt to The Hague in Netherlands because there'll be the International Criminal Tribunal on Ukraine called by the criminal court from the UN, the World Court. And so what, is, what are they going to do? They're going to sit back. They're going to say, what's the key law here? Well, the key is proportionality. And if we look at 100% of the, let's just take a, a hypothetical example, of the data storage of a particular target, and let's say that 10% of that target is military and 90% of that is commercial, what was the military purpose in taking the target out? Will it end the war or will it prolong the war? I mean, what is the military rationale for the targeting? If that does not hold up, then there's a proportionality issue and a potential war crime. So when we talk about proportionality, the idea is kind of along the lines that if somebody shoots a rifle across a border, you don't launch a nuclear weapon in the other direction. You can shoot back, but the idea is, is that you try 
if at all possible, to avoid escalation and certainly not jumping up a few. So let's take that into cyber. If you have a denial of service attack, I remember back in the 1990s, I worked for a company called Secure Computing. We had the Sidewinders uh, firewall. And it was a firewall that could kind of fight back. And you could go ahead and launch an attack against whoever was attacking you. Yeah, there was a little bit of legal issues in that they kind of removed that feature in a later version. But it did bring up an interesting concept. And there's been other proposals in, in Congress to say, hey, hack back, so to speak. Uh, but from that perspective, if we think about it, we're usually constrained in our ability to conduct offensive cyber operations, particularly if we're in the commercial and business and, and even in the, the government world. A little cutout for intelligence agencies and things, which we won't get into. And so as a result, if somebody is attacking you, are you only allowed to just defend yourself? Is there any way you can kind of reach out a little bit and say, slap them and say, knock that stuff off? I, I, where, where is the line today for being able to maybe take a little bit more active measures to protect yourself other than just simply being like Muhammad Ali and say, rope-a-dope, and I'll let you go ahead and, and use up all of your ISP uh, bits that you've bought for this month until your DDoS is done, and then I'm still fine. Well, that's actually a little bit easier than, than the other hard questions you've been asking, Mark, so I appreciate the softball on that one. So you absolutely, positively, you, whether you're an individual or an organization, have a right to self-defense. Absolutely, positively. However, once you exceed that, you're at your own peril. We have a good example in the United States. We have the stand and, de stand and defend states where, in theory, if I'm in my house and some dirtbag is trying to rob my jewelry, I can just shoot him because I'm in my house. We have the other states where you have to run out of your house and serve dinner to the dirtbag that he's trying to run your house because the, the law is particularly to the left. So if you take an action, you are not shielded by anything. You are not a combatant. You are just a person. And so there's the line between war crimes and treaties and crime crimes. And so if you hack who you think is attacking you, let's assume for the moment that you're able to identify it, and trust me, that's a big leap because attribution is a major hurdle in cyber conflict and cyber crime, for that matter. But if you are able, and let's suppose that person is in a jurisdiction, a country where there is a, a law that says you cannot enter somebody's system, uh, access somebody's system or network without permission, then uh, you could be tried for computer crime presuming that that country could get personal district and get your butt into their court. So you're at your own risk. There's no justification to shoot. And that's a good point, because if we think about it, it's pretty easy to do kind of a bounce attack. Attackers aren't going to say, hey, I'm just going to attack you from my location here in some known hostile state, because we'll just block everything from that IP address range. And hey, guess what? We're fine. So they'll go ahead and get into something else and then using that other hacked system, bounce off. So what you end up doing is essentially the equivalent would be an enemy combatant goes into your neighbor's house and climbs up and tries to go ahead and maybe shoot out the window. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to go ahead and blow up the whole house. Well, that's not a proportional number one, but then you're taking out the innocent party. So it's probably important in that case for CISOs and other security leaders to have well-established incident response plan, which includes 
plans for contacting and communication with law enforcement. Now, that's a big deal because a lot of organizations sometimes get a little bit squeamish when it says, well, what are we going to tell the law enforcement officers? And does that get us into trouble? Does that create potential legal liability? Are the lawyers going to come after us? But these are questions that should really be asked and answered long before one is facing a crisis. So how does somebody prepare effectively to be able to create this liaison and a communications template for working with law enforcement? First of all, one of the glaring issues I see uh, in my role at Tal Global, which is a international security uh, risk analysis, executive protection, vulnerability analysis company, it's all physical security, and I'm general counsel, that's my job, is that the physical security side and the IT side are just totally apart. They're like two different companies. And so when a vulnerability assessment is done, it doesn't include the IT side of the house. It's the, can I get in the front door kind of an issue. So in answer to your question, how do you prepare? Well, let's assume for the moment that I'm a CISO. I'm going to walk down the hall to the chief security guy, who's probably a physical security guy, and maybe even retired law enforcement. So my colleagues at Tal Global, several of them are licensed PIs. We have uh, two ex-FBI agents and one uh, former police officer in Oakland. And those guys know how to get behind the blue line. They know how to get to law enforcement. And so as the CISO, I would use my physical security guy as an entree to understand my local law enforcement environment. Having said that, I live in Silicon Valley, and Santa Clara County has had a reasonably robust cybercrime unit for quite some time, but not every situation uh, will have that. Another thing that is useful that I would recommend is that if you're a CISO and you're not part of FBI InfraGuard, you need to get your head examined because that gives you access that gives you the ability to talk to the FBI, and you may or may not want to make them part of your preventative crisis action plan. Another organization you probably want to work with is the Secret Service Electronic Crime Task Force. And the Secret Service and the FBI have two totally different missions. Uh, And maybe I'm an oversimplifier, But in my view, the Secret Service is far more oriented with prevention, although they they do a fair bit of crime detection prevention, whereas the FBI is catch the bad guy. And so there's that element. Local law enforcement, you really need to be tight with them because you want to understand what would happen under various scenarios. That's critical. Federal law enforcement, it kind of depends what business you're in. If you're in the toilet paper business, probably not a big deal. If you're a bank, big deal. You're a power company, big deal. You're a healthcare company, big deal. Why? Because the potential amount of harm is very high. In the torts business, they have a standard of negligence, old common law standard from uh, my good friend uh, in England. That's the gravity of the harm. How likely is it to occur? The magnitude of the damage and the cost to prevent. So if you're in one of the critical infrastructure, that's likely to be a target. And and we know power grid, you know, you talk to the first year cybersecurity student, 
What would you do if you were going to cyber war? Oh, attack the power grid. You know, it's like a parrot. So if you're in one of those critical structures with a high likelihood of being attacked, you need to understand what your resources are before you need them. Interesting. So what we have then is federal law enforcement, secret service, and again, financial crimes, and that's a big deal there. And of course, they're dealing with currency and money as well. Electronic money, thank you. Uh, FBI, which runs InfraGard, I-N-F-R-A-G-A-R-D, spelled that way so they could trademark it, .org, by the way. And you're, you're welcome to join. But note that if you do, you need to be a U.S. citizen and they'll run a simple background check on you, which means that if you didn't return that library book back in ninth grade, they'll find out. A lot, lot of nickels that you'll have to come up with for that one. However, the idea of contacting law enforcement in advance makes a lot of sense because at that point in time, you've created, if you will, a little bit of a relationship. InfraGuard's always looking for articulate speakers. And although I speak for a living, I always speak for them at no charge as a kind of a give back to the community. And I, I encourage anybody who is good with a microphone to do so. Help out your fellow community that way. Plus, it also gets you in touch with the people that if things really went bad in a hurry, you would be able to call up and they go, hey, this is G-Mark. Hey, G-Mark, how you doing? This is Special Agent Smith. Why you want to work with the FBI and Secret Services? Those guys retire. And when they retire, they're excellent candidates to potentially fill key security spots in your company. And they also uh, tend to start doing some charitable work, perhaps for ISSA or local uh, foundations like one we have in San Francisco, the Marines Memorial Club. I think uh, one of my colleagues, a former FBI agent, Malcolm Palmore, former Marine guy, but he's still okay. Mark, Navy guy, Marine guy, sometimes they don't play nice. He's, he's now doing very well in the civilian security space. So... Another reason to work with these guys ahead of time is they're potentially good employees. That's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about that, but it does make sense because I can remember my teaching career, people coming up to me and saying, hey, I'm wrapping up my career in a year or two. Any thoughts or ideas? And you can be part of a good network. Of course, if you're on LinkedIn, that's probably the, the best way to connect to a lot of people professionally. In fact, at this conference, I say, hey, let's stay in touch. And universally, everybody's saying, like, yeah, connect to me on LinkedIn, the old Business cards printed up on pieces of dead trees don't seem to be as common anymore. And, of course, the electronic communication works pretty well. So any final thoughts that you have? We've talked a lot about the law of armed conflict. We've looked at cyber war. We've gone into looking at, for example, the Talon Manual, International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, critical infrastructure sectors, electronic crimes task force, some other ideas with regard to InfraGuard. Anything that we haven't covered that you think would fit well into this whole subject that we've been discussing today. Let me just uh, offer a couple of closing thoughts. If you are a CISO, whether or not you like this idea, you have to be a salesperson and a good negotiator. You have to understand psychological warfare. And uh, give a little plug, I have done a blog for over 10 years now, psyopregiment.blogspot, P-S-Y-O-P regiment, one word, psyopregiment.blogspot. And I don't post very often, but I do post uh, what I believe are, and I've been told, are pretty insightful pieces. Uh, I did one a couple of weeks ago about how Congress is saying, oh my God, the American military is trying to influence people. The bad guys, uh, if you consider our uh, international countries such as Russia and uh, the People's Republic, 
they influence people. They don't tell people they're 40 billion bots and 20 million trolls. And so I did an article on that. But I've done some ones where I'm proud of the headlines. I did one about masks uh, and Batman. That was a good one. That was quite some time ago. So uh, that's a good resource. Also, if you're not good at public speaking, there's a lot of resources out there. And if you want to learn how to work with the media, you can always work with a nonprofit and volunteer to be in their public affairs department. I'll put in a plug for the Red Cross. I've been a public affairs officer with the Red Cross now for over 20 years. And uh, you meet an awful lot of nice people all the time. But when there's a disaster, you're out there helping people and you're exercising uh, your skills under pressure, which is a good thing to do. Thanks, Mark. Well, Larry, thank you very much for taking the time out of your schedule to spend some time with our audience here at CISO Tradecraft. It's been great knowing you over the years, and I look forward to knowing you for several more years. And privileged to get a chance to spend some time and listening to your insights based upon your long and distinguished career doing legal, cyber, and other types of work as well. This is G. Mark Hardy from CISO Tradecraft. We thank you for taking the time to listen in. Please, if you're not following us on LinkedIn, please do so. And go back and give us a like or a five-star on your favorite podcast venue from which you're listening. Why? Because it helps us improve in our ratings. Other people can find us, and you can do some good for the order. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and stay safe out there.